Okay, so today on my podcast, I have Tansy Hoskins. And thank you so much for being here and letting me interview you. Uh, and Tansy, you're an award-winning journalist and author of this really good book, Anti-Capitalist Book of Fashion. Um, you also have a second book called Footwear. But this yeah, book footwork. is yeah, footwork, footwork, what your shoes are doing to the world. But this book is celebrating its 10th anniversary, which you can go into. Um, but I just want to say that uh, I've been a long time Marxist activist, socialist activist, part of lots of different social justice issues. And I think for any activist out there, this book is important to have on your shelf because it tells me everything I need to know about fashion under capitalism, which is very political, which you detail throughout the book, and which is very much steeped in historical and present day violence, predominantly against women in the global South or ex-colonial world, whatever you want to call it. So I want to get into that, but let's first start off with, yeah, this 10th anniversary of the book, what that means to you and why you got into this issue of like fashion under capitalism. Yeah, well, thank you. First of all, thank you so much for inviting me uh, here today. It's really great to hang out and chat and um, I feel like I need to um, like quote you on my book jacket now for what you, what you just said about the book. So um, thank you. Um, yeah, so this is the 10th anniversary. Like uh, actually today is the 10th anniversary of the actual launch, which feels quite um you know, sort of serendipitous that I get to talk about it. Um, so it first came out as Switched Up, and then I rewrote it in um, 2021 to turn it into just the anti-capitalist book of fashion. Because, uh, you know, I wrote this book in 2011, and so much has, you know, so much has changed uh, in the past 10 years. But then in many ways, so much hasn't changed as well. So it was like, yeah, it was it was quite a thing to go back and, you know, and look at all this stuff that I've written about, you know, a decade ago and then just be like, oh, we, you know, we're still, we're still here. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I was drawn to the question of fashion and capitalism literally because I had questions and I couldn't find anybody uh, who was answering them. And I think that's like probably quite a good way to write a book or you know or do a podcast or whatever is like is to answer the questions that you have um and then you know fingers crossed other people have those questions um as well you know because like back in the day it was like quite a fringe thing to talk about capitalism in the same sentence as as fashion um, and i yeah I, I thought it was really important to change that like i think as leftist it's really important that we don't leave you know these massive cultural industries like to the right you know uh that but that we have like opinions on them and and we dissect them because you know they have such a massive impact on every person on the planet and like you know it's our it's our business as well to understand what's going on yeah i mean i think it was a bit fringe it wasn't fringe but it wasn't as mainstream as it is now to even talk about capitalism or like at least a marxist perspective of the world economy because it was well, after the after the nineties, it was pretty much you know discredited, according to like liberals. So, I think with your book, it's like a really comprehensive Marxist analysis. I would say of even just from an economic point of view of the fashion industry and breaking it down. So it's a very important text. Um, but yeah, you talked about how things have changed and things have not changed. Um, it was in no, October, November, we saw really big protests happening in Bangladesh. Um, and these protests were for the increase of wages, um, you know, thousands on the street uh, protesting for, it was, it was, I think the, what they were asking for was around $208, let's say per month. And where they were at was about $75 and it's gone up. And so they got negotiated to a hundred. That's still less, I believe, half of what Chinese garment workers are making. But again, these protests were met with brutality, with violence. They were, you know, workers were being beaten. There is a quote from one worker, which is, it's from The Guardian. They can threaten us and beat us, but if we accept the ridiculous wage proposal, we'll starve to death anyways. This is a Bangladeshi female worker. Because the living wage, to actually survive inflation in Bangladesh, you would need about $400 to $300 a month. So my question is, why are we back here again? Because last year we celebrated, celebrated, that's a horrible word last year was the 10th anniversary of the Rana Plaza collapse. 
And this collapse was, you know, an eight-story building housing five garment fact garment factories. All everyone it's just completely like um there was a term I read, industrial homicide. You know, thousand yeah. workers, thousand and twelve hundred workers, thousands more injured. It's just a catastrophe. I remembered that. But why people even took put themselves in that position was because of these wages that they needed work. And so we're back here again. Tell me about that. Like how are we why are we back where where we are again? Yeah, I mean I mean I think it's really important that we that we do recognize Rana Plaza as as not being an accident and as being an incident of industrial homicide. Um and I think what a lot of people don't know is that on the morning when the factory collapsed, there was an argument on the forecourt outside uh, of the factory because it was very common local knowledge that this building was structurally unsafe. And the day before, cracks had started to appear uh, in the building. And so there was an argument between the workers on one hand and the managers on the other. Uh, and the workers were saying, we don't want to go into the building. It's clearly unsafe. And the managers essentially were like, go into the building, get to your workstations and get to work. Otherwise, um, you know, we're going to dock you a month's pay. And I think that is like the critical moment in the fashion industry where you really see uh, not just the fashion industry, but capitalism itself laid bare. Uh, because, you know, it was that was the choice. That was the ultimatum given to those workers. And, and if you were a young garment worker or a, a garment worker in Bangladesh, like you cannot lose a month's wages you know you will have no house you'll have no uh, nothing to eat um no health care no transport um and so on and 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 that's you know that was the moment where we saw very starkly that the fashion industry uh, cares more about the clothes and the garments that are produced than about the the people uh, who are producing them um and and that's just the, that pattern has not changed i mean you know we're still living under capitalism uh, we saw that pattern repeated throughout the pandemic where, you know, workers were told, you know, go into these like extraordinarily unsafe garment factories. I mean, I've been to garment factories. They are the worst ventilated buildings you'll ever, you know, you'll ever go on. It's like, you know, that if there are windows, they might have been boarded up uh, and so on. People work very closely together. Um, they are like, you know, they are a hotbed for like for disease and, you know, so uh, like like COVID. Um, but the choice was like go into these death trap factories or starve to death. And again, that's what we saw with Bangladesh in, um, in, in late 2023 was this like other, you know, sort of life or death situation where it's, you know, it's like you have to ask for a pay rise. Like you can't live under these conditions. You can't support your family. You can't pay your rent. Uh, you can't eat. Um, you know, you can't have a diet that includes fruit and vegetables and protein. Uh, and, and yet you face, you're facing like the guns and the batons of the state. Like literally, you know, five, um, I, I believe that five people were, were killed in those protests. And um, over 100 workers and trade union leaders were arrested in Bangladesh. Uh, and, and all for just asking like a little bit more money like just a living wage like enough money that they can can uh, uh, literally live on so yeah in, in structurally like the, the fashion industry has not changed it still cares more about the clothes that are being made than than the workers that are, that are making those clothes um you mentioned like the violence uh the labor unions yeah the workers that are protesting this isn't just something that just happens like separate from us, you know, and I want to get into this, the, like this type of violence that we see in places like Bangladesh, India, Myanmar, it's very much steeped in a colonial history. Like, and I think we forget that when we talk about exploitation of garment workers, how the crimes of colonialism have led to these countries kind of continuing on in a cycle of further exploitation. So they were exp they were being exploited during colonialism, but now in this era of post-colonialism, they still it's a different type of exploitation where it's not British soldiers on the ground, but it's a form of ex uh, economic exploitation. So why is that important to understand that? And I think you did a great job like in the chapter shaping the map of the industry 
and I'll just quote you on this, where you say, to understand why the fashion industry looks as it does today, we must examine its history through a prison of globalization, colonial trade, and industrialism. And really, you trace this through, you know, early Britain, industrial uh, Britain to, yeah, the global south. And if you can lay that map out and why we're still connected to what's happening there. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm I'm like I'm sat here in in London, uh, in in England, and you know, if I go to my local clothing store, like there is a very, you know, there is a reason why the clothes that I will find being sold by British corporations have been made in Bangladesh, uh, India, Pakistan. Like these are the exact same colonial roots. Um, that that have been there, you know, for for hundreds and hundreds of years, and and like you say, like it's um, it's not so blatant. It's not like there's armies there, kind of holding people up and taking taxes, and well, and you know, and just taking whatever they want. Um, but it's but it's the same. It's the exact uh, like same model. Um, and I remember, like, there's a there's a statistic that always like blows my mind uh, on this, which is um, there's like the um, professor uh, Patnaik, who's like an Indian Marxist, and um, they calculated that between 1765 and 1938, uh, Britain alone drained $45 trillion uh, from from India. Um, You know, and and like to put that into perspective for people who are listening, you know, Britain's entire GDP for 2018 was like $3 So. You know, so Britain was built on this like drained uh, wealth from like from from India, um, and I've just finished uh, like writing a report for War on One, which is like called Fixing the Fashion Industry, and and we looked at some really interesting data on like extraction from the global south to the global north, which is still happening uh, now. So um, the economist Jason Hickle led this research team. And they took data from 2015 and they were actually able to calculate what this drain from the south to the global north was. Um, And they equated to 12 billion tons of raw materials, um, 800 million hectares of land. uh, And initially, I think for the garment industry, 188 million person years of labor. Um, And so in a single year, that works out as over like 10 you know, $10 trillion, which incidentally is a, an amount of money that could end extreme poverty uh, 70 times over. So I just, you know, I just wanted to bring that into the conversation just to show people in like black and white that that colonial drain has not stopped at all. Like it's, you know, it, it's still happening. Um, but before people start maybe feeling a bit hopeless about it, like I think the really important thing with those statistics, you know, if you think about, like 188 million person years of labor is that like okay so if we stopped like having all that labor go into these like devastating extractive industries so you know if we we, like didn't make people spend all their lives in garment factories or growing like like crops just for like export um is like look at that capacity uh, for like for change, I mean that's like you know that's that's an extraordinary amount of like energy and land and uh, and, and and human capacity that could be put into building like a, a completely a completely new world. So it's like shocking, um, but strangely hopeful as well if we can just sort of crack this system and and then you know people could choose what they um what they spend their time doing. Um, I remember that statistic in the book the amount of financial drain from India, from Britain, from Britain during those years. And I was shocked. I had yeah. to write it down and underline it because yeah. uh, I was thinking like a lot of my comedy is a bit political comedy. So it's always jabs at the establishment. So I had written it down. I'm like, hmm, I got to think of a way to, <laughs> to make a joke out of this in a way that means something. Yeah, but If you can come up with a way that people can like visualize it, that would be amazing because these numbers are insane. so big. It's like, yeah. It's truly, truly insane. And I think it shouldn't be hopeless, but hopeful, because we'll get to this part of the interview where we talk about, and this is why I really like the book, is like 
it is a question of reformer revolution. Are we going to deal with band-aid solutions when it comes to the fashion industry or a complete overhaul of a new economic system? So when we're talking about colonialism, it's not like, you know, one or two bad, you know, governments or generals or whatever periods in history. It's actually the logic of capitalism to maintain this draining of the global South. Um, Like, I don't know the detailed history of Bangladesh, but for instance, it is like when you had these colonial, like you had these independence movements happening after the Second World War, you know, it's sufficient enough to say that these countries in Asia and Africa were looking for self-sufficiency. We want an indus- we want to build industry so we're self-sufficient. Well, the only way you could really be self-sufficient on an economic model is to nationalize major industries that, you know, imperialists were exploiting. But that doesn't work to the imperialist advantage. So it's to so then they interrupt these movements and they install governments or they topple governments. And what you have, so in the period of Bangladesh, which is a new country in the 70s, you know, it was, they tried for self-sufficiency, but that becomes toppled over and then they become dependent on the IMF and the World Bank and all these loans. And these export industries are geared towards complete exploitation, like these free trade zones that they establish. Um, I remember reading this in university years ago, because I had to write a paper about it where it's like, Free trade zones was something in the 90s and 2000s where they're just zones where industry can set up where no, 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 no international law, nothing, anything goes. You could basically shoot a worker for saying something against, you know, a, ma- a manufacturer and there's nothing to, to enforce any kind of legality. And this is how imperialists kept their profits through this brutal exploitation. But again, that's just the logic of capitalism. How else would you do it? Um, so I guess, yeah, in a roundabout, in a long winded way, I'm saying that it's hopeful if we kind of look at it from a structural point of view, that structurally we have to dismantle this system. Does that make sense? <laughs> it's just like, yeah, yeah, totally. And I think it's, it's really important to, to, to be pointing these things out that again, like it's not, it's not like an accident and it's not like there's something I don't know, like natural about poverty in Bangladesh. It's exactly. like, there's not like the, yeah, there's there's not at all. This is like a, a completely constructed system which has been set up to benefit, you know, uh, certain parts of the world and and certain corporations in those you know in 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 those parts in those parts of the world. Like it's um yeah it's it's like an, an artificial horror that we could you know we could get we could get rid of. Absolutely, and we keep saying Bangladesh. I mean, there's definitely so many countries that you've listed in the book, like from. Latin America to the global South to Africa, but it's just a name that keeps like it's on the tip of my tongue. But I do want to mention this one thing because um, you said this perfectly is like there's nothing natural about it. And we have to reemphasize that because it reinstills this racism where, yeah, why is it the global South just making all these cheap clothes? Maybe, maybe they just like working super hard. And it's there's so much racism instilled in that. But you, I read this article that you, you wrote. It was with an artist who had a photo montage. I love photo montages where she took the Bengal famine and she put it on top of the Rana Plaza destruction to show a continuity between colonialism, what the British had done it's to, to Bengal at that time, to what imperialism does to Bangladesh. It's, it's a running thread, you know. There's nothing natural about it. Yeah, that's a very difficult I find, always find that a very difficult image to look at Amnit's yeah, work on um that merges the Bengal famine and, and Rana Plaza like but it's but it it was such a it's such a powerful piece of work because it's um I, f- I feel like it just illustrates one image you know what everything you know everything I try and, and say in the book it's it's yeah it's so it's so powerful and I, and I think you know I think it's so important that people understand that and that it's not like oh you know like Rana Plaza was an accident and like Bangladesh has always been like this and blah 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 it's like no this is um this is very deliberate so and so yeah so so I, I we talked a bit about like yeah capitalism and imperialism, it's logical that they do this. Um, It's also logical that they would stamp out any kind of resistance to this kind of raw, violent exploitation. And that resistance in the global south, uh, in Bangladesh, is uh, unions. 
that resistance, whether China, Sri Lanka, are unions, right? So, and meaningful labor reforms. And the reason why these unions are, and, and labor reforms are prevented and union organizers are brutalized is because it would actually cut into the profit motive of these industries. So I want to ask you, because I know you've traveled a lot and, you know, you've done such great work in all these countries. Like, can you tell me about the experience of these trade union uh, forces in the countries that you've been, um, how they're organizing, and what can we do as uh, trade union supporters and activists in the West to help? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, it's really like, I don't know to be like cliche, but it's, it, it is really heroic work being done um, you know, by like by trade unionists and, and, and workers who are on like the front line of the the violence that capitalism and the fashion industry like inflicts uh, upon people. And you know, I, I guess like to like people imagine like just a very a very small office, usually like in a in the sort of like poorer district down an alleyway. Um, and like plastic chairs and like posters on the wall, um, and like and just like a couple of people in there who are um, under you know under constant threat from the state of like being surveyed um, um, by the state, um, you know under threats of like like violence, you know like factory owners uh, will quite happily hire a bunch of thugs to go and like beat up the local union organisers, you know it's like. I've had people show me like the scars, like that they, you know, that they've had, um, like in, in, inflicted upon them, um, you know. But into these offices, like comes like a steady stream of people, uh, like you know, garment workers who, you know, where there's like, I don't know, there's like a dispute over their pay, or they've been sacked, or maybe like they're they're being harassed, or you know, like or something's gone wrong, and and it's like the the, the union is like the only place that that people have to go. Um, and it's like, yeah, it's such, it's such an important, such an important part. And and you know, occasionally you get you achieve like really amazing things. I mean, I think we're, we're going to talk more about Tamil Nadu and um, some of like the unions there, like uh, in a bit. Um, but yeah, what can we do as you know, in, in like in the global north? I mean, I think I think it's really important that. We don't view it as like one way traffic, like well, we like we help them kind of thing. Because I, I really think um, a lot of the time, like the union stuff that's happening, like you know, like the process we talked about in Bangladesh, like we should be taking notes uh, from there, like that, you know, the enormous um, like worker led demonstrations, uh, you know, going up against the government, and like you know didn't achieve exactly what it wanted but like they 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 got a small pay increase um you know and so very, and very dynamic and like led by young women a lot of the time um so yeah i think i think there's got to be kind of cross cross pollination um with like within within the, the global union world but then yeah i mean like any any kind of solidarity uh work is really important you know like create like raising funds uh for people like every time you know, there's a call out because a union leader's been arrested and now is in prison in Myanmar. Like, you know, people like stopping and taking the time to like write the letter to the embassy, the Myanmar embassy in England or Sweden or, you know, or, or wherever it is. Um, uh, and like sharing the work of, of trade unions. I mean, I think a lot of the work that we can do in the global north is about like disrupting the kind of business as usual narrative like the fashion industry really desperately wants um the world to think that everything is fine you know and that they like they love their workers and everything's like perfectly fine and stuff and i think you know if we amplify the work that's being done and the experiences of workers in the south then like you know we we disrupt that narrative and um I, like I, I also, I also know that a lot of the time, like the unions and campaign groups, you know, in in Bangladesh and Sri Lanka and so on, would like love to have the headquarters, uh, you know, the headquarters of H and M or a branch in H and of H and M, uh, you know, or Primark, whatever, where they could like go to. So I think also like uh, maintaining the tradition of like street protest is really important. Um, 
you know, and, and, and showing up and doing like that kind of solidarity work. Um, but yeah, but and also like I, mean, I think people know this a lot more now, but like just like listening to actually what unions want to do and not and you know, not doing like a counterproductive measure like calling for a boycott when the workers and the unions really don't want that kind of thing to happen. Um so yeah, I guess like like listening and learning and then like like help like raising money and then supporting the things that you know that they, they need as well um you mean a boycott like um so because i remember with rana plaza and like other boycotts yeah we won't buy products from that from that store yeah i think yeah sorry go on no no go for it um i agree um well boycotts are very limited and i think you have this chapter about like not this section about Myanmar and these women that were imprisoned for organizing. This is one of the thousands of stories, particularly women because the garment industry is majority women and there's this violence and it's just constantly on you. And if you step out of line and if you stand up for just basic human rights, so then what is the most effective tool? Like what could you actively effectively do to even take on authoritarian regime to even, you know, that, that's help supporting these manufacturers and these businesses is like strikes is like actually strengthening the union and going on strike, a collective strike, even if it's very dangerous because that that's all the workers have is that collective power because of what capitalism's done in these, in these countries is that it's actually raised a working force. And because they all are in the same role of production, they can actually shut down a factory and then maybe even organize to shut down one or two. So we need to re we need to understand that in the West, that the power of a strike and the power of collective action is much more is much more beneficial than a boycott. And I think we forget that in the West because we are not actively taking up those forms of actions. Like strikes, walkouts, general strikes. So if like do you know what I mean? So it's um I feel there's a disconnect on that, but I don't know if you want to comment on it. There's no question. I just, I find that interesting that you're saying that. And I'm, I'm thinking back to this point. Yeah, no, I think, I think, I think, I think you're absolutely right. Um, and it, yeah, it comes back to sort of, yeah, like lessons that can be learned, um, you know, in here, like here in, in the global North as well. Um, by yeah, looking at looking at you know, countries and situations where maybe yeah, it's more it's much more stark. Um, but people, yeah, people people are being just so incredibly, like so incredibly courageous. Um, and you know, and like you say, like it, it's it's very often um, like young women. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I just I often think. Uh, like I'm thinking of that might like some like Myanmar and stuff like um even before the coup you know I think one of the things that I don't know it makes me think how stark and bad things are in the fashion industry is like how you know how would how would we react here if like our manager like hit us at work you know like when was the last time you can you ever heard of someone being hit at a workplace um by like by their manager but and you know and, and trying to understand that actually like if you're like a Myanmar garment worker like in a young woman like that's that's like that can be like a daily thing where you, you know it's just like get slapped or hit um you know because you you haven't produced enough units or you know or you've spoken or you've been to the toilet or like you know they just want to hit you like it's it's such a it's such a hideously violent industry it's humiliating. It's so degrading. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I think the closest we've seen this kind of humiliation is the Amazon workers in the US. Is you know, I, I'm not sure about Amazon workers in the UK, but there's no Amazon factory here in Sweden. But there was a, there was a a real grind to really humiliate these workers. No bathroom breaks, very little, always on the on the assembly line. And the Amazon workers you know, struggled to find their footing. And eventually, after so much resistance, set up a union. So much resistance, right? And they so, so they set up a union and that was through, and then a lot of young people, I read an article uh, a year ago, um, a lot of the young people now unionizing are, you know, my generation or a little bit younger. 
And it's changing our perspective of unions, which kind of was like an older generation's thing, like we'll need the union. So we are very much connected, but it's on this power of what workers can do collectively to to beat back this humiliation. But yeah, that's crazy that you say that because I would lose my mind if someone slapped me behind my head because I wasn't being productive. I know. I, Isn't that crazy? Like, yeah, it's 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 like it's it's unimaginable, uh, and it, you know, and it should be unimaginable in, in in supply chains in the you know in the fashion industry. But at the moment, yeah, it's just like this like routine. Um, but yeah, you're right about you are right about like you know t- um, taking inspiration around like union density from you know from a lot of these workplaces in in the global south. I think it has become it's it's not as common or as typical for young people in in the global north to be in a trade union um and i yeah i think that's another you're right it's another place where it's really important to be inspired by like yeah you're, you know you're much you're much better off if if you're in a union than 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 not um just get connecting to this point on violence i'm going to talk about this case you mentioned uh in your book uh jayashree and i'm just going to quote about the case so that everyone knows what we're talking about, because it really struck with me. Um, Jayasri Kadri Ravel was a 21-year-old Dalit woman from Tamil Nadu, and she was the first person in her village to go to college. She got a job as a garment worker at a factory called Nachi Apparel in a rural part of Tamil Nadu. And Nachi Apparel is owned by Eastman Exports Global Clothing, and that's India's fourth biggest exporter, and it's a supplier for brands such as H&M. So it was her intention to leave the job as soon as she found, was going to find uh, another employment. In January 2021, JS3 did not return home from work. After an extensive search by her family and community that lasted four days, she was discovered dead in a patch of wasteland. She was raped and murdered. Her supervisor at Nachi Apparel confessed and was charged with this horrific crime. So how often... Does this happen? Like when we think about women in the garment industry and the violence that they face, because and and I want you to talk about the organizing that happened around it. You were very much a part of it. This is an atrocious story because what I think, with her hands, probably I picked up a five dollar shirt, and with her life, you know, and this stuff happens. I assume a lot of the time and we still don't give a shit like uh, like we give a shit like and I want you to talk about the organizing because I don't want you to think I'm being insensitive but I'm talking on a like a general kind of level like but we don't and we continue on and this story really hurts me because I'm Tamil and not just because of that it's you know there's other elements Dalits are so horribly oppressed people in, in South India and all of India and and a woman to want to go to you know in these oppressed layers to try to reach and achieve her dreams and it's all being sucked away and you know I think it hurts every woman to hear this type of story so if you can talk about that um yeah um yeah it's it it's really hard and I think this was why it was so important that there was a significant um, global pushback ag- against this case so that we didn't allow uh, rape and murder to become a normalised part of the fashion industry. Um, this was and this was an extreme uh this was an extreme incident in the fashion industry but it's not it wasn't like it wasn't like a total outlier um you know sexual violence is endemic across the fashion industry um and like you say i mean yeah this jessery's case it, it was like a, a nexus of oppression so she was oppressed as a as a woman uh she was oppressed along caste lines as it was a dalit woman uh, she was oppressed along class lines. Uh, you know, she was from a, like a, a poor working class family, um, and she was oppressed along like pa- like power lines. You know, the, the factory that she was working in. Uh, you know, ninety percent of the workers were women. Ninety percent of the supervisors were older. You know, older men. Um, it's a, a really really toxic 
uh, environment. And after Jessery was killed, it, there was many women came forward from that factory uh, and said that they had also been like, um, like, like sexually assaulted by the people, you know, people working there. Um, and God, I mean, I, I remember reading some testimony from from one woman. Uh, where she would pray every time um, she went into the factory because she, that's how frightened she was just going going to work, um, which is yeah, which is horrible. Uh, and 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 so yes, there was this you know, when the news of this story broke. I, I think it was so visceral and and so horrible that there was like there was a global um, outcry against it, and um, you know activists like around the world, America and Britain and. Uh, like the Netherlands and Germany come together and, and like yeah like I think we like we have to draw a line in the sound you know we can always draw and get some sort of lines um, but like you, you just cannot allow this to become normalised um, and I think it was really important to point out that H and M had been a customer of that factory for like roughly ten years um, so you know you're completely right that like. Probably we have encountered um, clothes that were made in that factory and, and quite possibly by Jasri and by like by her friends. Um, I think it's really important to point out that that moment did lead to something really remarkable in the fashion industry. Um, and I am like, I am sure as hell not one of those people that's like, Oh, you know, like you need things like Rana Plaza to, or you know, or horrific yeah. murders to like make things happen. Like, I do not think for one single second that it should take tragedies for us, you know, for people to wake up and uh, and do things. But so, but with that said, like the like Jessie's murder and then the outpouring of like of grief and rage that it that created led to this really important agreement called the Dindigal Agreement uh, to end gender. Uh, violence and harassment, um, which was named after the Dindigal uh, region of, uh, of Tamil um, Nadu, and really crucially, like this was a, a an agreement that was negotiated by the TTCU, which is the Tamil Nadu Tamil Nadu Textile and Common Labour Union, which is like um, I mean I don't have favourites when it comes to unions, but if I did, <laughs> you know the TTCU, it's like it's a women led uh, union. It's a Dalit women-led union. It's like it's like feisty and fierce, and um, and 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 they genuinely have achieved something like historic um, with with Eastman uh, with Eastman exports, um, and they have like they have completely turned that organisation around. Um, you know the the woman that I mentioned who pray when she when she goes when she went into work is now like a a union organizer in that factory um and i i have to say like if it was um like in the in a position to be like uh i don't know ordering uh, clothing uh orders from from a factory i now would um want to use a factory that was covered by the dindigal agreement um because that is probably now the one factory that you can go to and say there's like sexual harassment and is like is dealt with properly um and you know and they've they've taken a really like a really brilliant approach to it like so sexual harassment it includes you know like things like taking photographs and stuff so if a male a male supervisor takes photographs they're not supposed to like that that gets him a ticket and he gets in trouble for that and um you know and, and like managers have been fired and there's loads of like they're doing those like positivity training and um and like and workshops and empowerment workshops for the workers and stuff and the um the results after a year have been remarkable um that you know the question is just like obviously like why why did it take the death of this young woman? Like, you know, what the hell was H and M doing? They've been there for like ten years. It's been like the biggest brands on the planet, and they were, you know, they were overall uh, like in charge of this, like, you know, this like this hellhole. 
Um, but yeah, if people, so people, you know, it would be brilliant if people do look up the Bindigal Agreement because I think I think it should be like the biggest news in the fashion industry. Like there is so few uh, like bits of legislation and agreements like covering the like the fashion industry. You know, you've literally you've got the Bangladesh Accord building a fire safety. Um, there's like a similar agreement against sexual violence in Lesotho uh, in Africa, and then and then you've got the Dindigul Agreement, which is like yeah, which is like really like worker led. Um, I think like I would call myself a feminist, and you know, but a working class feminist and a socialist feminist. We just can't have feminism without understanding what women are doing in this in this part of the world and how they're really holding the ground and you know it's not that they're just fighting like see everything that they do so in this tragic case look what the union has done collectively this woman-led union to protect all women now in garment industries in that area on sexual harassment this cannot have been done effectively through like a, a legal reform some you know a law being passed it has to be reinforced by the workers with the collect with the power of the union so I don't know. It makes me also think what it's doing for women's freedom as well. Like workers, the workers struggle and unionism does for feminism, like what unionism does for women. And we, you know, we forget that. And it's just, this is why I get angry. I'm like, nobody gives a shit. Like, you know, how many more women do we have to lose? But you're absolutely right in saying, let's not forget after this tragic case, what has been accomplished by women themselves, collectively by women, trade union women. So. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I just wanted, wanted to, yeah, to give sort of both sides, like both or both incidents, you know, that, um, that like this terrible thing did happen, but that the the community that it happened to was able to, you know, then able to like to transform like their, you know, their workplace, um, but yeah, I mean, it like it, it's it's it is it's still it's still a drop in the ocean. But it you know it it, it proves that it, that it can be done. Um, and and I completely agree with you, like you know about like feminism and trade unionism. I think it's probably one of the like unexplored, um, but ultimately like catastrophic impacts of the fashion industry is this undermining of trade unions as a form of social progress. Uh, in you know in in a place like Tamil Nadu because you know I know like I, like as like a British woman like I I like oh like everything to the trade union yeah. movement and and like the movement in in this country um, you know it's like you know every like yeah it's such an important it's such an important part of like you know getting everything I know getting women into politics getting holidays like you know paternity leave um, like like everything that we have and and like and just getting women to be part of public public life and public spaces and stuff and you know and the fact that the fashion industry works hand in hand with governments to uh, to stifle trade unions is and is a crime against like you know against all the women or like uh, like yeah women everywhere around the world um, we would say but particularly in you know in, in Bangladesh and India and so on um, it's like it's such an important path out of like patriarchal repression. I mean, I think there's a bit of taking for granted what the union has done. I mean, I'm I was born and raised in Canada. Again, the Postal Workers Union is what uh, the women led the charge on maternity leave, you know, and then the union struggle for just basic things like the weekend off or whatever it may be. This is, this goes back to the early periods of industrialism. But also in Sweden, I live in Sweden now, like if, forget the union, but like just even what it's done to to create environment for where I can be myself or even if I do comedy, if I faced any kind of sexual harassment, that's it. I'll make sure that that person is called out and I'll take it to the right places and, you know, I won't take that. And then to hear that women have to pray to go into a factory so it doesn't happen. It means not that we should pity these women or that, you know, they're like in this, you know, very victimized state. It means we as the West are very complicit in creating those environments. We're benefiting off of it by the very clothes or the money that 
comes out of it. Which brings me to my next question, which is, yeah, like here in the United Kingdom, in North America, in Europe, we are the consumers of violent, cheap fashion. We're consuming that. Um, I know we did care. You know, after Rana Plaza, there was a period after this case, this tragic death, um, the murder of this girl. Like, you know, many cases, we, there's, there's always a period where we, it kind of surges up and we want to be consuming in an ethical way. But we don't. And it's like, we don't really continue that forward. And there's so many ways that we can blame ourselves. One way is that we're not getting paid enough. We're actually forced to consume cheaply, like as, <laughs> as consumers. Um, you know, uh, after Rana Plaza, there was this whole thing about not going to Walmart. But, you know, a lot of working class people in America are not even earning that much. Walmart is basically all they have, you know. And then there's also the scam of eco-consumption or green consumption. And there's also this like rise of social media and influencers. There's a lot going on here, but it's like, how do we care? And how do we care in the most effective way um, when there's so many distractions coming in? Yes. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, um, I don't feel like I have all the answers uh, like to this question. I mean, I think, I think it's partly this is the nature of globalized capitalism in that it is extremely alienating and people don't connect the things that they're buying with you know the lived reality of the factories that they're where they're being made um and you know I mean we don't even connect clothing with 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 people who've, who've made it at all, like let alone the conditions of, you know, that, they, that they've been made in, I think. Um, I also think there is still a knowledge gap. I mean, I don't know if you agree with that, but I, I still feel like people don't know exactly what is going on in, in the fashion industry. And I, that's still really difficult because, you know, there is like there's such an concerted effort to hide what's going on you know advertising and uh, a budget of the fashion industry I mean I don't know how much it is but it's like it'll be billions and billions and billions of pounds going into making people think like this is fine you know everything's great uh, I can have this beautiful thing and and you know it's consequence free um and then and then I think you know like like, like you say like we can't fix the fashion industry in a bubble like it's not like we can just wave a magic wand and fix the fashion industry without, you know, confronting and and, and changing the material reality of society in in totality, right? Like uh, because it, it is still true that for a, a, you know a lot of people um, don't have the disposable income, you know, living paycheck to paycheck. Like there is no money to go and buy like. Uh, I don't know, like organic cotton, um, you know, that's bit like been handmade in the country that you're, you know, living in, or, or whatever it is. But that's not like that's not like an excuse for for how like things are at, at the moment. But I think then it does need to be a recognition that like that fashion is part of um, a wider system, and ultimately, if we you know if we want people to uh, like spend their money on the most ethical thing possible then we have to make sure that people in the global north have that kind of money you know have you know we need a living wage in the global north as well as as the global south um and uh, yeah i think until we have that discussions about consumerism we just go round and round and round because you ultimately just come up against this lived reality uh, that people are, are, are dealing with I um I agree with the knowledge gap. I think we're in the dark about so many things. Like in your book, you lay out how alienated we are from a piece of clothing. So like, you know, let's say in pre-industrial time, we could see what we made. Even if you're living on a farm, even if you grow your own vegetables, even if you, you know, you see with your hands what you're making, the labor that goes into it. We're so, we're so disconnected because there's so many different processes of manufacturing of that one t-shirt that we're so out of that realm that all we do is then we see a t-shirt on the table when we walk into a store and it's five bucks and we pick it up. But had, had we really known the amount of water it took to dye that t-shirt, the chemicals that then are dumped back into the river, the wages that this poor, you know, 16 year old 
only earned by making it. We would be more conscious about the things that we do. Um, but there's also a bit of a wage gap, uh, no way, um, um, knowledge gap with like how we talk about it. Um, I don't think it's an excuse if you are low income to just buy low. Like, I don't think so. I think there has to be a constant, an effort to try to rise above that. Um, I do want to ask this question about the race, racism in the fashion industry. And I think that that's a very interesting, um, it can go so many different ways, but there's such a dehumanization with the fashion industry that we need to be aware of, of black and brown skin of first denying us spaces to participate and then fetishizing us and still denying us. And then there's this quote and you quote this author in your book, which I think just puts everything in perspective for me is like, why do I even want to participate if that, if the fashion industry is so steeped in racism? Like, so you say Janel Hobson, um, I guess her book is Venus in the dark questions whether power can even be achieved from beauty recognition. Do women of color who have been recognized as beautiful have the power to elevate the status of all women of color? Or are they just agents of change or just sex objects? It's like, I guess my question is like, how, like, yeah, how do we deal with a fashion industry just steeped in racism, anti-Semitism? Because you have a great chapter, great part on like brands that supported Nazi Germany directly or indirectly, whatever they did anti-feminism, you know, Coco Chanel and all this stuff. It's just, why do we even want to participate in this, you know? Yeah, wow. Well, so, I mean, God, Coco Coco Chanel, um, that's a name that makes my, like, blood boil. I mean, like, literally a card-carrying Nazi. Um, I I think it's really important that you mention that because, um, we do need to look at like the sort of like the scaffolding of the fashion industry, I think, and the like the the icons that are still held up. Um, so yeah, I mean Coco Chanel being like absolutely like perfect one. It's like there's still a refusal within the fashion industry to confront the fact that some of the icons are literal Nazis, like unapologetic Nazis, hated Jewish people, hated gay people, hated feminism, like disgusting human beings that that should not be held up. Um, And and so I think it's really important that we have those conversations um, and, you know, and that we find new icons, uh, like like for for one thing, and, you know, and that we sort of look at, like, why is Coco Chanel still an icon and, like, who is that benefiting and then I think that can kind of lead into more of a conversation about around like why is the fashion industry so racist and and who is that that benefiting because you know it, it is it's completely racist it's racist from like these you know these icons at the top right down to this enormous labor base of like tens of millions uh, of people who are like you know who are primarily women from from the global south. Uh, you know, and, and where does, you know, where does the fashion industry get the, like, you know, get the, like, audacity to treat, like, you know, tens of millions of people in, in that way? And, like, who is benefiting from that appalling treatment? And, you know, and, and what can we do to, um, like, to, to end, like, that model? But, um, you know, again, I think, like, it does come back to this uh, thing of, like, we can't fix the fashion industry in a bubble, but I think the fashion industry is such a brilliant way of understanding fashion. I think fashion industry is such a brilliant way of understanding capitalism because you have it so laid out there before you. Um, you know, like white-owned corporations exploiting like black and brown people across you know, across the world, and you know the money flowing up and and out of Bangladesh and you know Sri Lanka and on and flowing into the coffers of companies in, uh, in, in, you know, in, in Britain and uh, America and, and so on. Um, so, yes, I mean, like, I, I think it's definitely the change has to be structural. Like, it's not enough to just kind of change, like, figureheads or, you know, like, replace the CEOs at companies. Like, that, you know, that's, that's not what we're, we're talking about at all. 
Um, and it's not just about like visual change uh, in, in the fashion industry either. Like we need structural change, but I, I think, you know, that that's what the fashion industry gives you is, is the chance to see it as a symptom of much bigger problems uh, that, you know, that, that capitalism creates and, and, and maintains. Um, so I think we've, like throughout the discussion, we've talked about how the pro- like it's so problematic capitalism as a structure. Because I like in the last two chapters, you basically pose to the reader reform or revolution. And it's from Rosa Luxemburg's text, Reform or Revolution. And the idea is, do we fight for just like if we were to make it very contextual, like a policies, policy change, or do we fight for structural change? And I think we can do both, which is we need to fight in the here and now. Like you mentioned, the campaigns, the Bangladesh um, Safety Accord, all these things matter for workers today. We can't just wait for something later. But we can't just settle on that because we know that capitalism, the the logic of capitalism is a profit motive system. It has to keep churning out. It has to exploit to churn out profit. So we need structural change. So it is reform and revolution. Um, and then you ask this question of like, what does it that we want fashion to do in the society that we build that's free from exploitation? Um, I love how you talk about the Russian revolution after, after 1917 where people are actually free from SARS exploitation. They're free from capitalist exploitation. They get to build for a very short period of time, the society that they want. Um, But how, so there's two questions here. What do you think, like, how how do we revolutionize ourselves? Like what should we do on a day-to-day basis ourselves to take up that fight within the fashion industry because I don't think it's enough to just read a book and do a podcast like I do. We do have to do more. And then the other question is, what do you do personally to buy clothes, to style yourself? I think fashion is important. Like I have my own sense of fashion. It might not be extravagant, but yeah, like what do we do personally as well? So we take up this fight structurally, which I get, but personally, how do we, how do we do this? Gosh, yes. So, um, <laughs> leaving the like uh, uh, easy questions till the end. No. Um, uh, okay. Well, so I think we have to commit, like, to ourselves um, to the the fight against capitalism, kind of going on to like the, to the sort of the you know the the bitter end. I mean, I think everything that we're facing at the moment is going to is going to get worse uh with like you know with 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 climate change um in particular but i think we have to just understand that like there's never a moment where we stop or we give up like you know we're in this uh for, like for for the long haul um you know and and we're going to have to start connecting uh the fashion industry more explicitly to things like borders uh you know and questioning why do the you know why the clothes and shoes get to cross borders um, you know, to, to Europe, but like, you know, but people, uh, like people do not. Um, and yeah, and, and, you know, and there isn't, you know, so I think that kind that commitment is, it's really important. Um, and working in like, uh, direct synchronicity with workers' rights organizations and trade unions in, in the global south is like is is super important. So coming back to what we were talking about earlier. So um they like listening and learning. Uh so le- like learning from what unions and workers are doing in the global south. Listening to them when they tell us explicitly what they want us to do. You know, our leader's been put in prison, we need you to write these letters or we need you to go to the embassy and have a demonstration or we need you to go to this uh, brands like headquarters or flagship store and hold a demonstration, you know, and get the pictures sent all around the world so that our government knows that people in like England and Sweden and America or whatever like actually give a shit because that uh, that visibility is really important and it's um it can be the the difference between life or death and it can be the difference between imprisonment and and, and freedom. Um, so all of those kind of really like practical things uh, are really important. Um, and then, I mean, you know, there's the like, there's the like things like just following 
trade unions on social media and then amplifying what they're saying is really important and um you know making sure we're sort of listening to the right the right people and that like you know and that the arguments around like around the fashion industry are actually globalized uh, and as working class as possible is is really important um yeah what do i and then yeah and then i think also like the good news is that there are already lots of organizations who are doing loads of this good work um so in the uk for example there's uh war on want label behind the label um you know the clean clothes is like an umbrella um, european organization there's the wrc in america there's lot you know lots of like um groups in the, in the global north that people can engage with uh and um 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 i mean i definitely don't see the things that i do on a personal level as like as like my activism or how i you know i'm going to sort of structurally change um the fashion industry um and i think it's important to understand that because fashion does feel so personal you know we get very attached to like our clothes you know i love this hat for example uh, uh but you know that we are made to think that it's like a purely personal um like situation and so we're not taught to think about it politically or or, or structurally um you know but yeah i mean if it's helpful for people i mean i buy i think probably 98 percent of my clothes secondhand um which is not a perfect model by like by any means but um i find that i can be more creative um that way um and then yeah i guess kind of like I try and insulate myself from trend-based fashion media. Um, so, you know, and so avoiding buying like fashion magazines that make me feel like I'm not good enough. Um, it, avoiding like the more toxic side of social media, which again, you know, makes even like can definitely make me feel like I, I'm not good enough uh, in like a, a myriad uh, of ways. So yeah, like, and um like making sure I'm just like conscious of the way that I like talk to my, like my friends and, you know, and, and how they talk to me so that, you know, we can like celebrate things, but you know, you don't end up going falling into like, I don't know, um, talking about like trying to lose weight and, and like think like things like that. So just, yeah. Like just being kind of conscious, uh, like about that kind of thing. Um, and yeah, and then, I mean, you know, and then, and then enjoying, like enjoying stuff and like celebrating, uh, you know, I like, I love, like, I, you know, I, lo I love people who, you know, like make their own things or like distress things or like, um, like patch things together or, you know, or just make things like really cool. So like, I enjoy, yeah, a lot of like, I guess like a lot of like queer fashion. I like, I, you know, I like unashamedly like celebrate like that and um yeah and and like you know even like just getting the bus around london is where you often see like the most you know like the most the most interesting uh like the most interesting things and you know and, and clubs and parties and whatever it's like yeah it's like so I, yeah and and i think sort of thinking oh like taking inspiration from that and uh like yeah trying to imagine how how fashion like could be if if we had a yeah if we had a, a better more holistic yeah. society well thank you so much for like i don't know this interview was thank you for your time thank you for doing the interview with me um like i said i think every activist should have your book because it's just a complete it's an analysis of capitalism through fashion and you're able to break apart capitalism as well through this um so what are you going to do this year for the 10th anniversary of the book are you is there anything special like? Um, well, I wrote uh, like if people want to kind of keep in touch with my work, like I, I have a newsletter that I do through my through my website, which is um, www.tansyhoskins.org. And you can just subscribe uh, from it there. So I just kind of um, I just like I did my own thing. I just wanted to kind of do my own thing with it. So I basically um looked up loads of questions 
that like actual like famous authors have been asked on like important anniversaries of their book and I just um I just like brought together loads of those questions and then like answered them like for like for myself um so yeah like a bit of a kind of like vanity thing but I want I thought it was really important to like mark that moment um you know because like yeah the book the book did become like something quite like important to people and I'm I'm really I'm so glad I wrote it I think uh, I'm, I'm so glad that there is a book within the fashion space that so explicitly talks about like um, fascism, uh, ah, fascism, sorry, fashion and capitalism <laughs> um, and fascism. I do call out fascism, fascism in the in, in the in the fashion industry. Um, so, yeah, so that like and then, yeah, and then I thought this podcast would be like a great way to like, you know, celebrate the book as well. And I, I thought your questions were just like superb. Uh, it was yeah, really nice, like to talk with someone who like gets it all already is just like a real joy. So yeah. Thank you so much for listening to um, my podcast episode with uh, Tansy Hoskins. Um, like I said, this is a great book. Uh, if you're an activist, have this book on your shelf, read it, devour it. She exposes capitalism through fashion and she exposes fashion through capitalism. It's a great book. Um, support me and my work, subscribe, share my podcast. I have a Patreon where you could support me monthly or you can PayPal me a donation if you'd like so I can keep up with this work. Thank you again.